Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Trevor Nichols. Hello, Trevor Nichols. Hey, how's it going, Mark? Good, sir. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I think you also meant to say happy birthday there. Yeah, well, I was going to say a belated happy birthday, Trevor, because I know that it was your birthday this week. Yep, absolutely. I am uh, creeping ever closer to being a very old man. I mean, I've always been an old man in my head, but now my uh, physical body is catching up to it. So, <laughs> And you, you came through, you know, Christmas holidays and you came through a new year and now you come through a birthday in a pandemic. Were you able to enjoy yourself uh, over the holidays and enjoy your birthday? What did it look like? Well, Mark, I'm a profoundly low-key guy, so my ideal birthday is literally just hanging out with my wife for the night, maybe eating some good food, and so I got the exact birthday I wanted. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is like the pandemic is just a good excuse for you to, to stay home and not actually get out into the world and socialize and yeah, enjoy I the am, city. I am hashtag thriving during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you read any good books over the holiday, Trevor? Uh, I, I lost myself in a lot of really good fiction, uh, which, which is sort of like my comfort food over the holidays, but, uh, not, no nonfiction, which is, I know what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> yes, we are. And I'm, I'm actually, um, you know, not here to talk about, uh, you know, Barack Obama's book today, uh, <laughs> but I'm actually, you know, a, a couple of hundred pages in, into that Trevor and, and I'm really enjoying it, but I'm, I'm wishing for an audio book right now. Yeah, everyone wants to hear Barack Obama read his own book, right? Surely that's going to come at some point. <laughs> and it's 750 pages long. So I've had that feeling like I want to be that kind of modern reader where, you know, I'll maybe read 20 or 30 pages at night and then I'll get up to walk to work the next morning and listen to 10 minutes of it um, and kind of go back and forth. That's kind of how I see probably the future of my reading habits. Um, but at 750 pages and my attention span, Trevor, uh, it might, we might be here next January, uh, talking about me finishing that book. Well, at 700 pages, maybe Barack Obama will be till next January till he finishes recording the audiobook. <laughs> um, so, but, the, but the nonfiction books I'm actually here to talk about today, Trevor, um, over the last few months, I mean, I did, I must say, Trevor, I had a, a tough reading year last year. I just, I watched too much, uh, Netflix, uh, my attention span grew shorter and shorter. Um, but this is going to sound really funny. Um, books uh, about maritime entrepreneurs and businesses reignited my love of reading last year. Mark Legere, the ultimate maritime business editor. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so the, the first one that I that I read, uh, Trevor, um, was, was a, a book about uh, K.C. Irving, uh, written by uh, Donald Savoie, called, you know, Thanks for the Business, um, Story of Irving Oil and, and Arthur Irving and K.C. Irving. And that was a book that was written by Donald Savoie. And that, I mean, that was a really captivating story, uh, just about the evolution of the Irving family and, and their businesses in the region, and particularly... You know, it was the story a lot of, of Casey Irving and, and his entrepreneurial spark. Um, and I just loved a lot about that book. Uh, and it, it really resonated with me in, in the pandemic because, you know, he a lot of the book talked about how he actually grew his businesses um, strategically through the depression and, and just how tenacious he was about building even in that very tough time. Uh, you know, and then, and then next... Um, we had uh, we did an interview with Gordon Pitts on on the podcast uh, about his book Unicorn in the Woods, which was about um, you know the 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 creation of big tech companies in the region and particularly in New Brunswick, like uh, 
Radiant 6 and Q1 Labs and the eventual sale for, of those companies for more than a billion dollars combined. And, and again, it was a lot like the KC book, right? Where it was really the story of these very tenacious um, tech entrepreneurs um, who believed they could build world-class uh, tech businesses out of New Brunswick, right? And, and even though KC and, you know, Brian Flood and Chris Ramsey and Marcel Lebrun and all these guys were building companies in a very different era and very different kinds of businesses than the oil business, there was those echoes of these just tenacious builders, um, Trevor. And I, I mean, I, you might, uh, you might, um, you know, relate to this, but I mean, I've been an entrepreneur, but I honestly found those partially, I found those books exhausting. <laughs> yeah. These guys, whenever you read about the best entrepreneurs, it, it just makes you question all of your own life decisions. Like <laughs> if people are out here being this impressive and, and this tenacious, what am I doing? With that? <laughs> No, I know. And, and uh, you know, I say that if somebody if somebody's built businesses, I'm like, I'm not sure I have the energy these guys have. <laughs> um, so I had those two books as kind of table setters, uh, Trevor, and, and both, you know, both we, we featured both of them on our podcasts and and um, and done some reporting uh, around them as well. And so I was, you know, they they kind of reignited that reading passion when and uh, and then along comes uh, a book. Uh, by um, the founder of Peace by Chocolate, who you've uh, reported uh, on yourself in different stories you've done, uh, Tarek Haddad. And I picked his up. His book came out in, in the, it, wasn't, it was actually written by a CBC reporter, uh, John Tatry, uh, but a book about the growth of that company and the backstory behind them, their family coming to uh, Nova Scotia as refugees and uh, rebuilding um, a chocolate, uh, a chocolate making business that they had established and lost in in Syria. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your your the conversations and stories that you've done uh, with Tarek? Yeah, I, I think I think most people by now, especially in Nova Scotia, but probably in the Maritimes, know at least a little bit about Tarek. He's one of these guys who's incredibly inspiring, right? His he's he and his family have have built this uh, chocolate business kind of around the central idea of just you know it's called peace by chocolate, bringing peace into the world, spreading messages of of you know love and acceptance and and joy. And this is the kind of thing that might come off as like kind of cheesy or insincere, but it, as you know, having talked to Tarek, it, it is absolutely what he believes in and and what he's really trying to do through his sort of social entrepreneurism uh, with peace by chocolate. And one of the one of the really interesting things about uh, you know the, this book uh, that that John Tatry uh, wrote again it was released late last year um, but I was able to just dig into it at, at Christmas time and then set up the interview for a little bit after Christmas with Tarek is is that uh, in in many ways the book is a, is a story about their family and uh, a story about Tarek's father Isam who, uh, you know, I, and I don't even think the entrepreneurs that I've spoken about would, 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 uh, mind me saying this at all. Like he takes the notions of tenacity and resilience and hard work, uh, to another level. Um, you know, his father, uh, built a chocolate business in Damascus, Syria, you know, from, from scratch, if I can use that word, right. He, started with a small shop and a small production operation and eventually opened a factory and became one of the most, uh, you know, successful uh, chocolate companies in that region, right? And, and, and uh, it was an incredibly successful company and, and, and he lost it all 
in in that very you know tragic war. His, his factory was bombed. Their home was bombed. Uh, you know, they went to Lebanon and and you know eventually to to Anaganish in in Nova Scotia, and it it's heartbreaking to read about him building that business and then losing it. And, but then, you know, the story takes such a positive turn in, in Anagnish, right? They're, they're embraced by that community. Um, and Tarek and, and his father with the support of that community go about rebuilding that business in, into, uh, you know, a going concern, right? It, it now employs people in Anaganish. Um, they, they're refugees who have now become a huge part of that community. And and are now community leaders, Trevor, which is you know really remarkable. Yeah, and from a pure business perspective, they are they have have and are going to continue to expand uh, throughout the pandemic. And it's so funny because when you talk about Tarek and, and Peace by Chocolate, it's so easy to sort of like sometimes fall into these kind of cliche things. But then you hear him talk, and you're like, it, it just resonates and it feels real. And when I interviewed him, he told me like, you know, my family has been through so much, you know fleeing Syria and coming to Nova Scotia and restarting the business like we know how to we know how to operate during really really tough times the pandemic is a really really tough time and we've taken everything we've learned from all of our past experiences and have sort of turned it into this positive thing to grow our business and and you know spread this this message that we have with peace by chocolate you know and, and absolutely and uh, I mean I mean I remember uh, and we'll we'll jump to that conversation with with Tarek in in just a minute but I before we started our interview, I said, I mean, I said, Tarek, your story, the book is incredible. And it really is. I, I recommend everybody go out and, and buy it and read it uh, along with uh, buying the other uh, two books that um, we featured as well. But um, I said to him before, I said, I don't know how we're going to keep this conversation, you know, under an hour, Tarek, because your, your story is so rich and, and interesting. And it does uh, come in at about an hour. But um I think you'll stay with us through the whole conversation. Uh, you know, he had uh, he had me inspired the whole way throughout, and and I had to pour, let poor Tarek go at the end because I wanted to just keep asking him questions, uh, Trevor. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to to this interview. It'll be really interesting to hear a nice long hour long conversation with Tarek. Very captivating. Uh, I'm sure everyone's going to love it. Yeah, and and I'm also making an apology to you, uh, Trevor, before we jump to it, because I know you're always teasing me about the weather and I and and my conversations about the weather, and uh, I must say it's well deserved teasing, as I've said before. Um, but this interview become be, begins with a discussion about the weather, but for good reason, because I I had to. One of the things I was struck about in this book is that you know Tarek uh, arrives in 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 Nova Scotia uh, just as a blizzard is is starting <laughs> and uh, he has to be um, you know driven to Anaganish from the uh, Halifax airport and in a, in a snowstorm so good introduction for him and then you know handed a shovel the next morning uh, to help shovel himself out um by apologize but the the conversation does begin with a conversation about weather travel so so the truth comes out the real reason you like this interview so much mark is because you got your weather conversation in there <laughs> i definitely did i have to sneak it in there all right well let's go to my conversation with Tarek. good afternoon Tarek. good afternoon mark thank you for having me yeah how are you doing i'm doing well thank you yeah, I'm so glad to finally connect with you. Oh, me as well. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Yeah. So tell me, um, I have to ask, because I know we're just uh, coming, we're just past the, the five-year anniversary, I think, of you arriving in Canada. Um, yeah. I have to ask, because I know, I th I th if I remember right, Tariq, from your story, you arrived in, 
in Nova Scotia, it would appear to be a snowstorm. It was actually. I arrived in Toronto first, and I had no idea that I was coming to Nova Scotia at that time. Um, it was, uh, you know, uh, very exciting for sure for me. I landed in one of the biggest cities in the world. I landed in Toronto, and one of the most exciting times for me is just when they told me I'm going to Nova Scotia the next day. So I landed in Toronto December 18th. The next day I was on the plane to Halifax. Um, it was very interesting because um, I came to Canada in in the clothing that I had back in Lebanon, which was almost like 21 degrees at that time, I guess, when I left. So I arrived in Toronto. It was minus 27 in the night. So there is almost at least 50 degrees difference between <laughs> Lebanon and Toronto. It was absolutely massive um, shock in the beginning. But then I realized that uh, in Nova Scotia, the snow was the, the surprise. The biggest surprise really was not the cold, it was the snow. And since I landed at the airport here, um, it was like, yeah, I, I, I got to learn how to shovel or I, I won't be alive within <laughs> a year. So. <laughs> and so you arrived in, in Halifax and then had to make the drive to Anaganish. That's correct, yeah. There, yeah. Was, there was a group of... Uh, Antigonish people, they were waiting for me there and they knew that I was coming. They knew my name. They knew I was arriving from Syria. They basically sponsored my family to come from uh, Lebanon as refugees and arrive in Canada. So that's how everything happened. They drove me back to Antigonish on that night in December, December 18th, uh, December 19th from Halifax. And it was really one of the most astonishing moments for me, learning that there are human beings out there in the world in Canada, in, in Nova Scotia, caring about people from the 7,000, 8,000 kilometers far away from them on the other side of the world, just because we share one humanity, which was really heartwarming. And then I landed in Antigonish and then the, the dream started. Yeah, and they were prepared to go get you uh, and drive you back in the snow. They, they did actually, yeah. It was not too bad though. I mean, when we, we got there right on time, I guess if my flight was delayed by only like two or three hours, they would not, we would not have been able to make it to Antigonish. But when we were on the highway, it was just like starting to accumulate. It was like a blizzard. So I was lucky. We were really lucky. <laughs> we have made it back on time. The next day, though, I mean, when I woke up, it was like a massive, massive storm that has hit Nova Scotia. And then we had to shovel and they had to learn. So they taught me. I stayed with a Canadian family for like over um, 10 days and they taught me everything. First thing is how to shovel. Right. And yeah. and how did you how did you do you remember? Can you remember how you felt? Because you would have you would have arrived coming from Lebanon and, and it would have been, you know, 21 degrees and warm. And and suddenly you're driving, uh, you know, in, in the beginnings of a, a blizzard uh, from Halifax to Anaganish and then waking up and seeing snow. How did you feel? Oh, it was it was marvelous. I mean, uh, when we used to get snow in Syria, it was like a celebration. Right. You take the time off the whole country shuts down everyone celebrates you know family make uh, uh snowmen and uh it was it was amazing i mean i cannot really describe it uh, fairly and and in in justice for all the amazing canadians who have really done um whatever they could to bring me to canada safely and peacefully um i just realized the next morning i woke up in antigonish that i have arrived home and uh, now that i belong to a family a big Canadian family. And uh, at the moment when I landed in the airport, I had doubts within myself whether, you know, if things got back in Syria better, um, you know, would we go back there? Like any immigrant. So they started asking me, I was walking in 
in Toronto before my flight to Halifax. And some of you were like, if things get better in Syria, would you go back there? Um, like many immigrants do. And I was like, no, but because Canada is not like a hotel or a hospital that we leave after we recover. Um, it is now our home, right? And the country has done everything everything in, in, the, in its capacity really to bring us here safely. And now it's our responsibility to give back, our responsibility to contribute to the economy and to the country and to the community and to the amazing people who have really um, very selflessly run a campaign to bring us to Canada. Um, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of Canadians, they participated in this campaign from coast to coast to coast. They have embraced uh, the Syrian refugees as they are part of their family. And um, it really led me to think about humanity in another way. Because when you live through war, you kind of lose that sense of believing that there are good humans out there in the world, right? Because everything you see is the ugly part of, of humanity when we uh, create this conflict and we fight all about power, about authority, right? And we never really, we forget. We forget that there is goodness out there in the world. So the first thing that I'm very, I was very grateful for Canadian, uh, for Canadian um, uh, people, the community here in Tunisia, that they, they have restored that faith in humanity within myself and within my family. So it was amazing really to know that uh, I would wake up not only one day, not only two days, only five years, but forever, I would wake up in Canada knowing that uh, my life has changed forever. Great. And I know, obviously, when you arrived in, in Antigonish and you arrived in Canada, you had that that wonderful welcome and, and, and people welcomed you and then your family with open arms. Do you, do you still feel that? that you're, it's five years now. Do you, are you, do you still feel that, that same way? Are you still being embraced in the same way as you were when you arrived? Oh, more than ever. More than ever. Especially during... Um, I think the pandemic has started in March and then we started seeing people are really texting us the next day. They were asking us, how are we doing? Calling from all across the province, even though we have been here like for what, four, four and a half years. I was already a Canadian citizen, so I was already really used to the systems and processes in this country and what does it mean to live here? But they have still really checked on us and they knew that uh, if there's anything we needed. So I think the welcome that Canada offers to immigrants does not end at the moment of arrival, it, it goes way beyond that. It goes to the uh, to the everyday life. It goes uh, way far behind. Let me tell you just a short story, Mark. I think this is interesting. Just to tell the story of kindness and leadership uh, of, of Canadians. When I landed in Canada in uh, December 19th, I spent a few days um, just learning a lot of things about the culture, about the, the snow, but also I started, you know, feeling that I have to get a phone. Like I got, I got to go and buy a cell phone. So I went, I picked up my phone number just randomly, and I was like, yeah, that's that sounds good. I went back, uh, and after one hour, my phone rang for the first time, and I was surprised because I did not give my phone number yet to anyone. So I'm like, who's calling me? I mean, somebody should have really the wrong number. So I picked up the phone, and there was a woman in her 70s on the phone with her husband and she was trying to reach her daughter her daughter was named her name was Catherine so the woman on the phone she was like hey Catherine what I at and I'm like um, excuse me ma'am but you must have called the wrong number this is not Catherine she was like who is this I'm like no who is this <laughs> I'm like I was really secure I was not sharing my information 
And then the woman said, no, I was really trying to call my daughter. Her name is Catherine. And she left the country um, uh, a month and a half ago and she came back. She must have lost her phone number then. I was like, maybe that's the case. And then the woman, she realized at that time that they have an accent. She was like, uh, well, how long have you been in Antigonish? I'm like, I just really arrived 10 days ago and uh, from Syria. And she was like, so you're a newcomer to the country? I was like, yes. She was like, how is the weather up there in Antigonish? I'm like, it's great. And she was, you know, when you are in the Maritimes and you call the wrong number, even though it's the wrong number, the, the conversation would last for like 20 minutes. I called, I, I talked to that woman and her husband for 21 minutes, even though it was the wrong number. And then after she knew I was a newcomer to the country, she had saved my number with her husband and they kept calling me every second month. And they were checking on me and how, how I was doing and if I needed anything. Um, in 2018, they called me in May and they invited me to their son's wedding. So it was really a sweet gesture that you never see anywhere in the world. Like, I mean, this is this was really the, the time that this woman called me and has asked me, how am I doing? Even though I'm very stranger to her, I'm very stranger to her husband. I have never met them. I have not known them before, but they have shared something with me, that that love and kindness for strangers because they believe everything will pay will pay off at the end, right? It's the, the law of reciprocity. Whatever you get, you'll give back. Whatever you, you give, you'll get back. And it, it was really marvelous experience just to know that Maritimers are very warm-hearted people. And since then, I realized that... Uh, yeah, Nova Scotia is absolutely a lovely place uh, to be in. And I knew that I have a lot of time uh, to allocate towards giving back to the community and uh, whether it's by business, by medicine, as you know, I've read, you read the book. And so you know that my background was before that was in medicine. So I was trying to balance everything since arriving in Canada in the best way possible. What does the community require? How can we give back in the fastest way possible? And how can we you know, scan the gaps and see what is what is needed. And I hope that whatever we started back then in 2016 is still the best way to uh, to continue for now. Um, as me and my family were very proud of, um, you know, coming here, setting up the uh, our lives within a very short period of time and starting a business. Mm -hmm. Going going back to to uh, Syria before we talk about the business and how it grew in Canada and your and your life here, um, I, I was fascinated uh, reading about the story of your your father and your mother and and the beginnings of the the chocolate business and also the beginnings of your family because they both coincide together can you yeah. take you back there and and describe to me how your father started that business and and how your mother came into the picture oh it was it was a very interesting moment my father was a uh, a civil engineer he graduated he was really passionate about Making a difference, he, um, you know, he participated in many activities in his um, in his young age, until the time of graduation. When he finished, he came back to my grandmother and he told her he doesn't want to be a civil engineer anymore. Uh, he wants to do something else. He wants to do uh, to go and find out his passion in life because he was really he did not find it in civil engineering. He, the way he said it, if you go to university or if you go to college or wherever you do. You are being taught the same way as hundreds of thousands of students. So he did not really expect himself to do something different than those hundreds of thousands of people that they are going to be civil engineers at the same time of him. 
So the story really started very interestingly in 1986. My father and my grandmother, um, they went to my cousin's wedding. Uh, my father was sitting there watching everyone um, as the wedding was was continuing. Everyone's faces changed when they started serving chocolate. Um, and my father was like, everyone was happy when they were eating chocolate. So there must be a secret in that product. And then he started really thinking about it in a very different way. Because people in Syria, they were not used to eating chocolate, like in, 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 in weddings before that. I mean, it's a very new product to the country anyway, until like the, the 20th century. Uh, so my father was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to try to make it my way. Um, it was like, I'm going to make uh, happiness. I don't make chocolate. I will make happiness. He went to the home kitchen. He started making chocolate from scratch with my grandmother. Uh, they were really playing with it, like all the ingredients was um, was there on the table. Uh, cocoa, cocoa beans, uh, cocoa butter, sugar, um, you know, um, soya lecithin. The flavors, the uh, the fruits, the seeds, the the nuts, everything really was there, and they started mixing it together. And and you know, chocolate is a very messy product until like you have it in the in the freezer or in the cooler, it can be really messy. Like imagine chocolate was on the stove, was on the cooler, was on the floor. So but they were really not satisfied with the first batch, with the second batch, with the third batch. Uh, until like a few weeks, and then my father came up with a new recipe that 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 is controlled mainly by the temperature that he was roasting the cocoa beans before he crushed them and before he really mixed them with the other ingredients. And uh, that he's changed some of the percentages. He did not do that by himself because he did not really know how to make chocolate in the first place. And there was no YouTube at that time, 1986. So <laughs> it was really tough for him to know how to make chocolate. He went to the library in Damascus. He picked up like four books or five books and then he started learning how to make chocolate until within like three, four months he came up with his own recipe. Um, so then he realized that now he has the time, uh, the ability, the uh, the uh, passion towards sharing what he got from his own self and what he taught himself. And then really he, that's how it started from the home kitchen in Damascus to pieces of chocolate was given as gifts to family members, to friends, and then the word was spread out in the country, uh, first in Damascus, and then across the country within a few years. But the way that my mother went went on board was one year after my father started that passion, my father opened the first chocolate shop um, in downtown Damascus, and the second one was on the way to the airport. And my mother was on her way to the airport to fly, um, and then she she was like, I have four hours to spare, so let me stop by a chocolate shop and buy chocolate. And guess whose chocolate shop was that? It was my dad's first chocolate shop on the way to the airport. And then my mother, she came in the store and she was like, hi, can I get two boxes of chocolate? My dad was like, yeah, of course. Uh, my mom um, bought the, uh, the the two boxes of chocolate, uh, got them for, actually she got them for free, and then she bought some other stuff from the, the store. But then she traveled to see her family, and then when they opened the chocolates, my father has inserted two beautiful notes in the boxes. It said, my name is Isam. I don't make chocolate. I make happiness. And my mother really fell in love with that. Like she had never seen anything like it, the way that it touched her. Because my father shared his story in the box about how did this whole thing really come together? And this is very new to him. And this is very new to the family. It was really 
high-end premium chocolate that he made. Everyone fell in love with it. My mother came back to Damascus, then she went to the shop again, and then she started going to the shop every second month to buy chocolate. Within a few months, my family, my parents actually, fell in love and they got married. So <laughs> that's how, how the story really started. You know, I always say, joke that I was born over two boxes of chocolate. You know, that was uh, that was gifted to uh, to my mom. It was really interesting how my entire family were in line for the passion of my dad towards chocolate. And the way I was growing up, certainly, it was very different because I was going towards being a physician um, and I was correlating between chocolate and, and medicine. Not in a healthy way, because I know that chocolate has calories, <laughs> but in a different way that chocolate seeks happiness and medicine seeks to diminish the pain. So it's the same thing. How big did your father's business grow in, in Syria? It, it became uh, the second largest chocolate factory in the region in 2007. So, you know, after he started exporting outside of Damascus to other areas, other regions. So we're talking almost, you know, uh, 20 years after after the start, after the initial start of the business. Um, and then my dad was like um, really happy with the achievement. He was exporting everywhere. He was getting to to Turkey, to Belgium, to Sweden, to Germany. I mean, even when I think about Belgium, like this is the country of origin of chocolate. Like they, they don't need chocolate and they, they were still importing the Syrian chocolate that my father has created. It was really phenomenal to be part of um, a passionate family about not only making chocolate, but spreading happiness as my dad really wanted it to be. And my mom was on board and everyone, my siblings, everyone has his own touch, I think in the company. We were, we were still young, we were still contributing to the com company. Everyone had their own different path, but everyone really shared the, the legacy of the family that we have to leave. Um, it's all, life is all about how much footprint do you leave before, before you die, right? That, that's, that was really the whole purpose. And when we were making chocolate, the whole purpose was, you know, we, we have to leave the world a happier place. And the memories that people are going to remember our family is not by how many times they have met us, but how many times they have eaten the chocolate that we made. And how many times did the chocolate make them happy? And how many times did they share the chocolate with their loved ones? So it was really remarkable just to sit there in Damascus 2008 being knowing that our family owns the second largest chocolate company in the region we are spreading happiness we are sending chocolate out there the company was growing um, and being able to contribute we had a foundation in damascus that we were donating uh, to many organizations that they were caring for uh kids cancer and um, it was just really great to to be part of that as as a growing young man and my family as well and I know, um, you know, for you and, and your family, uh, it, as successful as that business became, um, you know, I, I was I was sad to to read in, in the book about about, you know, how how that came to an end there. Can can you tell me a little bit about about, you know, what happened after you, you hit that sort of pinnacle of success? So I'm not sure if, if any of the listeners have been to Damascus, but uh, it was one of the most ancient cities in the world, if not really the oldest. Um, so we were living on the border between the modern city and the ancient city of Damascus. Um, 2011, there was a movement in the Arab world, it's called the Arab Spring, 
but we were asking for their rights, you know, for changes in the informations in the way that the governments are running these countries. There was a whole lot of corruption. There was a whole lot of inequality and injustice, right, against so many layers of the community that they were living under poverty lines at that time. In 2011, um, the, the people in Syria started asking for some rights, uh, for ending of corruption, for uh, you know ha allowing other party to govern in 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 the country. Um, it was mainly a political movement, but also it was very uh, it it was has participating more than millions of Syrians that they were really affected hardly with without education, without healthcare. They did not have the basic rights as human beings and everyone was really joining them until 2012 when you know violence was was targeting these protesters across the country and they had to protect themselves so violence was beginning more violence and it turned into a war in 2000 mid this 2012 the war reached damascus and um, it was really not the happiest times uh, it was a, a time of fear anxiety it was a time when you know, people were just um, dying without really a uh, without any, any any protection, and it was just for the sole purpose that they were uh, victims of a war they did not war be they didn't want war to to be part of it. Like it was uh, was kind of forced on them, and mainly the victims are civilians who really wanted to leave the country at that time, but they were not able to. 2012, the year that has really changed everything when. We were at one one day we were sleeping in the house and then the war started around the area that we were in. We started hearing explosions and soldiers and checkpoints and we were really surprised just to see that how how much things can escalate within only a few minutes, within really few hours. Um, the next day we just realized we have to go to the basement, so we rushed to the basement. All my family members we went down we stayed in the basement for more than five nights without electricity without water without medicine uh, without any of the basics of life and um, you cannot hear anything in that basement it was a very dark room that was barely can fit 20 of us and there were 60 members of my family we were in the giant building 10 floors in damascus and we rushed to that basement just to take shelter from the, the bombings around us so on the sixth day, my family and I decided that we have to leave the basement. We went to our cars. Everyone left the country at that time. We lost the whole building after two days. It was bombed. It was actually burned. It was stolen, it was burned, and then it was bombed by uh, by the tank and airstrike. And that was around the fall uh, of 2012, but coming into 2013, the situation was not really easier. We moved to a downtown house, another house that our family owned. And uh, my father was still working at the factory. It was like, this is what I do. I'm not going to leave this, right? If you are so passionate about something, you cannot leave it, even, even if you know that your, your life depends on it, even if you know that you are going to die for it. And that was really who my dad was. And that was who my family were. They were so passionate about the chocolate business that we were going for it, even during the hardest times that the country had lived uh, during the war. My father still, still operated the factory. I was uh, still going to university, finishing up my medical degree at uh, Damascus University. And 
uh, my dad was there at the end of 2012 and I called him. I said, Dad, you should leave the factory right now with all the staff and all the employees. And he was like, why? And like I was watching the news and there are going to be explosions around the building. So you really have to leave. My father really was watching the news as well. He left the factory. He asked all the staff to leave. Everything was locked down. Ten minutes after my father left the factory, it was bombed by an airstrike. Um, so the factory was five floors. Um, it was leveled on the ground. It was really one of the most powerful explosions of the entire Syrian war. Um, it was um, so massive that uh, you know we were we were in downtown Damascus and we could really hear it. It was on the eastern side of the city, but it was really one of the most powerful explosions. And my father came back home. He didn't know what happened. He didn't know what what was destroyed. He just knew that he survived. But within a few days, my father knew that he lost his factory, and he spent three days not talking to anyone. He was saying everything has gone, everything has gone. So, uh, I mean, if you are passionate about something and you spent your life on it and you have, uh, you know, your blood, sweat and tears were contributed towards the success of it and you lose it just in the blink of an eye, right? Like this. So that was really devastating for many of my family members, not only for my father. Um, many of my family members, they were killed in, in Damascus in 2013. Um, I lost many of them at... Uh, that they have died in bombings, in in shooting by the the army, by on checkpoints, and then we realized it is not our homeland anymore. I mean, we have to leave the country so we don't become numbers of victims and numbers of people who died just because they they could not leave. So it was really the main target for us to be able to uh, share this legacy much further, right? We knew that we cannot die in 2013 because the legacy of spreading this happiness and the values that we believe in did not end there. So that's why we left the country, because we knew we can contribute much further towards peace and towards making people aware of the horrors of war more than if we really stayed there and we could have died. We left the country and then we went to Lebanon and that's when we were called refugees. It was really uh, horrific times of, of, you know, terror of... Uh, nightmares uh, you know it, it was it was really surprising though because everyone in syria before 2011 was, was thinking that the country was so safe right like if you talk to canadians now about war they would tell you that you know this is very far from us you know the last war the second world war the canadians have to, have to, to travel to europe and participated in it it was really uh, it was horror show uh, but they don't really know what does it mean like to, to live through war. So when I came here, I had that responsibility to share my experience so people would know that war is the last thing that everyone really wants to experience, right? It was it was really uh, um, uh, an experience from, from my history, from my family's memories, that a trauma that will never be forgotten uh, because when you live through violence uh, and you have to escape and save your family, then you have to realize that you have to educate and you have to share these experiences with many other people. Because if we don't understand the value of peace, we can lose it at the split of the moment, the same way my father lost his factory in Damascus. So that was really the main reason why we became peace advocates, not only in Canada, but when we left Syria to Lebanon. And that's how the whole 
story started in Canada in 2016 when we called the company Peace by Chocolate because we believe peace is very noble. Uh, we should be sharing this story with many people. And I'm so glad that our book was published late in 2020 because there was no better time than making people aware that there is much worse that can happen to the world than a pandemic. There's much worse, and that's war. And and, and to, to uh, I imagine explaining to people too that I mean you had you had a beautiful life in 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 Damascus, right? You had yeah. it was a beautiful old city. Um, the the story about all of your family living in this you know very large you know housing housing complex house. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, evokes a sense of warmth and community and. And your father had worked so hard to build a successful business and it's how he met your mother. And so it was the foundation of so much. Um, You know, I can't imagine how difficult that was for him to lose all that. And then, but then, but the other, on the other side of it, the, the the courage and the resilience and that kind of entrepreneurial tenacity to come to Canada and then decide to build it back up again. Um, I mean, it's part of an on, the entrepreneur's story, right? Of not, yeah. of not, um, not taking loss and and no, you know, not, not trying again. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it was it was really. I mean, entrepreneurship for our family is mainly like uh, there was a quote from Reid Hoffman. He said, "Entrepreneurship is like jumping off cliffs and building a plane on the way down." So. Um, and then really we had to fly again. So building the plane, but also we had to learn how to fly in Syria. And that was really the whole story of starting a business in the first place. But also for my family, when we came here to Canada and uh, much more of the story is, is, was documented in many, in many videos that people can really find on, on YouTube. And hopefully it will be shared in a movie that we filmed earlier in 2020. It will be released soon. But really, the whole passion of coming to Canada and starting that business again was much more, I think, different than the way we did it in Syria because we are in a new country and we are in a new mission. When my father started in 1986, uh, the goal was to spread happiness. And when we started the company in 2016, again in Canada, the goal is to spread peace. And then happiness would come. We knew that happiness would come after peace. Uh, because without peace, no one can go to work. No one can build businesses. You cannot raise kids. We cannot do this interview without peace, right? We cannot go to school. No one can really do anything without peace. So we we realize this is the foundation of life. And um, then then we said, how can we merge and connect our um, story and our experiences with spreading peace? And then chocolate was the, the first way for us to start sharing this message, right? And we're like, I can talk about peace for like three hours. But then I was like, what if I connected peace to chocolate? What if people was were eating chocolate and heard me talk about peace? I think it would come to their mind much faster and it would connect to their hearts before their, their minds and would connect to their, uh, I think, um, palates. Like, you know, they would taste, they would taste peace. They would taste that the, the sweetness and how much really does it mean for us? to continue the legacy and the path we started back in Damascus. So there, there's an important point as well that uh, people forget about it, which is immigrants come to Canada and they, they don't come here empty. No one comes to Canada empty, right? Everyone has their own skills, has their own talent and their, their own passion, their own stories, their own experiences. 
even though we lost everything in Syria, we did not lose any of that. This is this was our intellectual property. Right, so we, we got everything lost in the war, but they did not kill that spirit in us. They did not kill that knowledge, that skill, that talent. And this is something you don't lose in a war. This is something that goes with you forever until you die. So we knew how to make chocolate. That's why we started making chocolate again in, in Canada. And being an entrepreneur again is um, being remarkable and being unique. So when we knew that uh, we have passion for that product, uh, we realized that we can easily share it with the community that, that they are really passionate about the cause that brought us to Canada in the first place. And uh, we, we built on that in 2016 until we were really lucky that we found ourselves in a position where we are as a social enterprise before we are a business sharing everything with the community and building building on that. In 2016, uh, we started the business. We called it Peace by Chocolate until the Prime Minister mentioned us in at the United Nations in a speech on September 20th, 2016. Uh, I was looking on the news, watching them with my family and my um, my parents were crying, just looking and listening to a speech from the Prime Minister, talking about our story, coming to Canada, sharing our passion, calling the comedy Peace by Chocolate and asking world leaders. Imagine sitting in a room and asking Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, and he was like, you can follow them on Facebook and they're called Peace by Chocolate. So <laughs> this was outstanding. It was absolutely out of this world. So we had to celebrate like for three days. The phone did not stop. It was really remarkable. And I cannot forget these moments. Yeah, and when, uh, a, a couple of questions about you and your father. So so your, you know, your father uh, and and the, not the rest of your family, but other members of your family make their way to Canada and to Antigonish to join you. And can you tell me a little bit about um, when when your father, you know, found that kind of like strength and and resolve and and uh, drive to start the business again, uh, and also uh, to you, uh, you your plans were to become a doctor and. Then you're suddenly become an entrepreneur. So can you tell me a little bit about yeah. first about how your dad uh, kind of re- found that resolve to restart the business, and then and then how you went from becoming a doctor to becoming an entrepreneur yourself? That's, that's a very interesting question. Thank you, Mark. I mean, when we came to Canada, and um, within really the next day, my father woke up here in this country. I arrived on January seventh. Uh, I landed in Nova Scotia. I remember. Um, so, uh, I mean, his fifth anniversary is, is coming very soon. So it was really the, the moment he woke up in, in Canada, he realized that, yes, it is time to get back to work. Um, he was like, our family now is safe. We started here. I'm going to learn the language. He did not speak any word of English before he came here. Um, and uh, it was like, I can get the support from the community. I have now a big family in the community. Everyone was checking on us. We got like you know, uh, flower bouquets in, in our in our uh, uh, mailbox. People were knocking on our door asking us, what do we need? It was really the sense of belonging came back to him again. And that was really the first thing that made him very optimistic about what can happen for the family in Canada. So uh, we started, you know, the same way my father did 30 years ago in Syria. It was the same way, um, just digging down in the home kitchen, finding the tools, and making chocolate from scratch. It was really the cause to restart and rebuild. And it was a huge um, reflection of the resilience of human beings that I have seen in my dad. 
is no matter what you lose, as long as you are alive, you are able to rebuild, right? And that was really how my father had this mindset that we we are here, we can learn everything about the culture, about the community. We don't have to get to take off anything from our culture. And that's the beauty of Canada. No one asks you to take off anything of your culture when you land in the airport. Everyone is welcome the way they are, the way they worship, the way they believe, the way that they, you know, they 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 have they have their own their own relationships. It was it was really marvelous to land in a country that respects the freedom and human rights um, of of human beings. So that was really the first the first foundation of the success of uh, my family landing here and realizing the difference and the contrast, you know, between how the world is being run and how things are being run in Canada. And we know that there are issues in the country, but we know that we are not perfect as well. But this is very beautiful, landing in the country and knowing that you will get the citizenship within really three years of, of arrival. That, that was a big thing. So my father my father thought that uh, he did not lose any of his intellectual property, of his knowledge, his skills, talents. Uh, and again, he had the whole family with him now. It's not my grandmother. But it's me, it's my mother, it's my siblings. We are here in integration. We started making chocolate again with him. Uh, and that's really how the business grew. It was it was also at the time um, for me when I encouraged my family to start that. I was the only English speaking person when I landed in Canada with few words, just knowing the basics of the language. And um, I had two options, whether I go back to high school again to get back to medicine after finishing uh, my undergraduate, or I can dig down and start a business with a family and find solutions later on. I thought that business was a platform, of, uh, a powerful platform to thank the country, to thank the community, especially in a community like Antigua that has opened the doors for us. We realized that the first thing we can do is to offer jobs in the community. And uh, it was after a, a confrontation I had with someone who was against immigration in Nova Scotia when he said that, why did you come to Canada to take our jobs? And it was in Halifax, actually. I was sitting in one of the, the cafes there. And I actually turned to him and I said, well, we did not come here to take jobs. We came here to create them, right? There, were, there was that that misinformation that, and if you, if you talk about immigration in, in, in general, you see immigrants coming here and starting businesses and really not relying on welfare, not taking, but adding to the country. And that's really the reason for the success here in this country. It was really an inspiration for me because we are not the only family that came from, from away. <laughs> the country has been opening doors forever, really for immigrants coming here and starting their lives. So for me, I had the passion that my family had to restart the business with them, uh, market the business, find the right uh, name, find the right slogans, find the right products, find the right packaging, find the right messages, the vision, the mission, the values that will govern us for a long, for a long, for a long run as a family and as a business. So that's really how everything happened, and I couldn't really be more proud that we I, we are not only founding the Peace by Chocolate Company, but we also founded the Peace on Earth Society which is uh, an organization that donates to causes like healthcare, uh, uh, mental health, uh, indigenous communities across Canada, refugees who are arriving here in across the country as well. Many people can learn about our Peace on Earth Society and hopefully join our efforts by going to our website, peacebychocolate.ca, and they can find our Peace on Earth Society. And there's so much about uh, 
your story that, you know, Canadians and, and immigrants can learn about, uh, you know, how how to settle successfully and, and, and build a, you know, build a good life, build a business, um, build connections to the community. And, you know, one of the things that struck me reading the book was how you were embraced in, in Anaganish and, and we all, you, you know, yourself from being in business in Syria and being in business in Canada, how important uh, the community is embracing entrepreneurs and, and nurturing and helping them, um, whether you're an immigrant or whether you were born and raised here. And I was really struck by, um, how many people wanted to come in with their expertise, with their labor, and and help you help you build this business back up? Yeah, it was it was really remarkable. We have spread the word out in town that we need some support in the beginning that to build a small factory outside of our house, and we have got tens of people from from across the town, from across really the county, uh, carpenters, electricians, uh, business planners, everyone really that had a spare time. They came after work in, in the summer of 2016 to build a factory for us. And um, it was really a show of humanity. It was a show of kindness. It was a show of empathy and generosity because you don't see that anywhere else in the world. So uh, we are always grateful for everyone who has who, who donated their time, their efforts, their money for our company in the beginning to get on our feet, you know, to start selling uh, our, our chocolates that we did back in 2016 at farmers markets in Antigonish, in Nova Scotia. And now we are more than a thousand stores across Canada uh, from, from coast to coast. And we are really expanding um, our, our efforts. So, you know, there have been many learning curves for us in the business. And I know that everyone really hears always about in the news about our, our plans, our expansions. I know that there, there have been some challenges, but nothing is compared to whatever our family had lived before. And we're really lucky that the past five years have been a great learning experience for us. Whatever direction we took in the business, it was a great learning curve. There was no mistake. They were all lessons, right? And that's that's the, the thing that when you look in entrepreneurship and real entrepreneurs, you know that the first error is not a mistake. It's a lesson. And we hope that we have learned a lot in the past. We are now implementing new strategies in the business. And I'm so thankful that uh, we have used the, the 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 pandemic to our advantage to sit down, to pause, to, to reflect, to build back better and to build the company better for the future. And now we are well positioned in 2021, hopefully to recover and expand well as well. Yeah. And and doing it out of, uh, you know, a small town like Antigonish, because I know obviously in Atlanta, Canada, there's that challenge for for businesses to, you know, to, to grow here, you know, to, to find the right markets, to find the right people to work in the businesses, no matter what they are, that it's a continuing challenge for us, which is why um, I, I was, I was curious, uh, you know, reading in, in, in the book about, you know, the possibility that you could, you know, take what you've built and, you know, go to Montreal, for example, because you had a company at one point talking to you, uh, right. asking about potentially moving there right. and, and you you said no. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I I love Atlantic Canada. It is my my home now. And I've traveled across the country and across the world in uh, the first uh, four years of my life in Canada before the pandemic. I've been to every major city in the country. I've been to every province. I've been to many countries around the world. And there was no part in in 
in the whole world that is really like Atlantic Canada, like Nova Scotia. So I am really proud to be part of this of this amazing region in the country of Nova Scotia. And the we are we are uh, amazing people that we have here. They are so passionate. They are very warm-hearted. That they are always supportive of a new mission and and immigrants. And we are really lucky to see that our story has been a has been an example of many in the province that was really inspiring many new Nova Scotians to continue their efforts to help many other refugees. And I hope that they continue doing that after we knew during the pandemic as a country and as a province the you know the the, the suffering that we have lived through. Um, I hope that we reflect on that. Um, I, I'm very proud, really, of our of our strength and resilience in this province. Um, Nova Scotia will always be strong, and I hope that uh, people will always think uh, twice before leaving this province. I know that many people they they still leave, they go to big cities, they go to uh, the major areas that uh, uh, that was they were offered to me. And many people ask me, immigrants usually go to big big areas, big cities. You know, there is a big Syrian community in Mississauga that is the size of Halifax entirely. So why didn't I go there? I'm like, I am here to contribute and give back. And I'm here not really to be in a big city where I would be a stranger, I'd be a number. When I landed in Nova Scotia, everyone really considered me part of their family. And wherever I go, wherever I um, I had dinners, wherever I visited friends, um, I've seen really the real meaning of love and true um, kindness in the hearts of Nova Scotia. So um, this province has given me a lot, uh, to be honest, and I have um, been very proud of uh, this as the whole country has really shared its love and open arms with every city and every immigrant. But I hope that uh, our company will be able one day to uh, to be one of the top chocolate companies in Canada again. Uh, hopefully we are on the way. We are on the right track. It'll be very interesting to see how Peaceway Chocolate would be like if I look back from 2031 and see the actions that we are taking in 2021, how it's going to affect our future for the next 10 years. And I'm really so confident that's going to be a bright, um, wide open future for, for our business and for our family. And we're really excited about what, what's to come. So tell me, um, I, I won't keep you much longer. You're being very generous with your time. But I'm, I'm curious, so how how big is the company right now? You So you have, a, you know, a thousand um, retail outlets that you sell through across the country. Uh, how big is the factory and how many people does it employ right now? Well, you know, our, our company is mainly operates on a seasonality. Like we have seasons that we, we run through, Valentine's, Easter. Uh, we have a big Mother's Day summer that we comes into Halloween that we started last year. And our biggest season always is certainly the holiday season, which, which, can, which can be really almost 70% of our business that come between between September and mid-December. So that is really the peak time that our company uh, have. You know, our company uh, employs up to 55 employees at the, that peak time between full-time seasonal employees. Um, as I mentioned, in 2020, we had to shut down fully uh, in March and April. Uh, we had to lay off all of our staff. But there was no nothing really happening in the factory. It was really the time when we thought it was it was the right step for us to pause, lay off all the staff, uh, shut down the factory for a while until we know where this is going. We reopened again in May and it was really not an easy start again after the pandemic started. Uh, we had to recall up some of our staff. Some of them, they had already left the town. 
some of them they were they were joining us back on Christmas that they were not able to. So we had to restart not from scratch, but we had to rebuild new strategies for employment, for distribution. We were really lucky that our brand was was the main asset that we had at that time because everyone knew the need for peace in their minds and in their lives at the time of uncertainty and anxiety. We started rebuilding and in and on Christmas season we had really uh, we were working in the factory for almost 20 hours a day uh, in the holiday season in 2020. It was really amazing to have seen that support um, last year. Uh, so we are catalyzing that. We are building on that to make sure that the company continue the uh, the growth that, that we started originally in 2017 when we opened the factory. So uh, the factory actually it, it is expanding all the time. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was really a an amazing part of, of our story is going from a small tiny shed on Bay Street in Antigonish that was 500 square feet to a factory that is, you know, in 2017 it was 25 times bigger in one step, right? And we kept expanding on it every every year. Like last year we expanded, this year we are planning another expansion in the factory, adding new departments. We were only chocolate company and we added uh, clothing to the company then now we are adding snacks like chocolate covered pretzels chocolate covered cookies and now the biggest step that we are doing is opening a new outlet in in the city of halifax coming out very soon early spring 2021 oh you are yes we are it's yeah. very exciting so uh this is going to be one of the biggest steps for us as a family to be part of the uh the business community in the city that has embraced us before we move there even uh, or open a store there uh, whatever happens in the business, to be clear with you, Antigonish will always be our our headquarters. So it will be the, the place where we make the magic, right? And then we have outlets planned to be open elsewhere in the country, hopefully within the next year or so. But now we are really excited about the step that's coming out in the spring in, in the city of Halifax and uh, see how that goes. But we continue our really close relationships with all the outlets and the our vendors that we highly appreciate and we, we stand by them because we know how hard it is. I know many vendors now in Ontario, they have locked down until January 21st. They have lost a lot. They had to pay rent. They had to lay off their staff. It is a pain. Um, but I know that the business community in Canada is very resilient as well. And I know that uh, businesses are standing by each other, um, not only in the time of um, happiness, but in, in the time of flexibility, but also in the time of anxiety and certainty um, and uh, I'm very proud to be part of that community uh, in, in Canada. They have taught me a lot. It, 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 it sounds like, and I know it's obviously a very different situation than coming here from, from Syria and what you had to rebuild from, but, but it, it sounds like you also are going through a little bit of a rebuilding process and then, then expansion uh, because of COVID-19. Um, so do you, do you know where in Halifax you'll locate uh, your shop yet? Or do you have that? those details finalized yeah yeah the, the store will be downtown um in the downtown area on the waterfront um so uh more details hopefully to come out to um, to the media very soon hopefully sometime in february um, as we are deciding our uh, opening date um, but uh yeah we are really excited to uh, to be part of the uh, the amazing community business community there just being at the heart of the city of halifax only five years after arriving in the country this is a big, a major step for us moving forward. And uh, it would be a, 
a big reason for us really to have something to celebrate after all of that of what happened in 2020 and the losses that we that the business community has had in in Nova Scotia we just hopefully get the message out there whatever is lost can be rebuilt and uh, we hope that our our location in Halifax will not only be we call it a chocolate boutique but also it is a reason for for us to share the messages of peace so um, there are many, there is, there's so much really to share about that store. I hope that people will be watching out for it. I'll be releasing more information about it and what to expect and the partnerships we are making through that location um, at the heart of the city. Um, a couple more questions, I promise. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, when, you, when you had the business in, in Syria and you were starting to expand in the Middle East and become a bigger company and you were starting to export into Europe, um, do you? How do you see the future of the company? So you're, you're talking about opening other retail outlets after Halifax. Um, how do you see export opportunities for for your products? Uh, we actually, um, that's a very interesting question. We just finished our uh, a major step in the company. We built our export plan from uh, finished it by the end of 2020. Um, so the goal now, the company is on track to. Uh, we ship now retail. Uh, we sell across the United States. We ship chocolate around the world, but our main uh, target and goal is to be on shelves in the United States in many retail chains and networks that they have reached out to us and they are ready to carry our product. Uh, we hope that this is going to be an amazing and major step for us coming in 2022 as we go into next year. Um, and that will be that would be certainly the biggest expansion for the company since we started it is once we hit we start hitting the shelves into some of the us uh, chains that they are very like-minded that they care a lot about uh, uh, messages about peace and love and inclusion and diversity and um, we have uh, been really lucky to be communicating that message very clear and very um i think easily in in a way that's very appealing to many people that speak to their daily lives like for for every season we have a message right like even when the pandemic started let me show you this when the pandemic started we know that so many people were away from each other we created the bar we called thinking of you so many people were just like you know getting getting the the chocolates not only because of the chocolate tastes good but because the messages they are so relevant to whatever people were living and we called we called them the major product now called the mood booster um for many seasons we have different messages for valentine's we show people the, the real meaning of love advice from senior couples across the country that have been together more than 25 years we print that insert it in chocolate boxes ship it across the country so it there's there's a lot going on in the company many messages many campaigns it's all really heavily uh, relevant to what the world is living through right right now and uh yeah in 2020 i guess the the main reason for our um success and the, the the main reason for our reachability in every household in Nova Scotia almost and every part of the country I hope that people find it really relevant to know that peace is very noble and uh, we have to protect it uh, because it can be lost very easily and peace comes from our understanding and support to each other uh, I understood that after the pandemic started and I knew that uh, if I had to choose between living through a war in 2013 or a pandemic I would choose the second because there's nothing really as horrific as living through a war. The, it, it makes me think the, um, you know, uh, ch chocolate is uh, a wonderful uh, expression of peace and love. 
And I was thinking when you were talking about Valentine's Day coming up, um, I'd just share a, a quick story with you. Uh, I was living in, uh, my wife and I were living in, in Ghana, in West Africa in 2007, shortly after we, we got married, we decided to, to go traveling again um, before okay. we settled down and had a family. And so we lived in and worked in, in Ghana for uh, eight, nine months. And Valentine's Day in Ghana was called right. Chocolate Day. Oh, is it? Okay. Yes. And, and, and so it was, it was all about happy chocolate day. And so I thought, well, what, what a transparent expression of what Valentine's Day is really about, which is chocolate. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you could feel free to steal that branding from Ghana. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I, I, that, that's very brand new information to me. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. That. And I'm not sure if it's widespread in that part of, of Africa. It, it, it extended to the other countries in that region. But certainly right. in Ghana, in fact, I remember, you know, we I remember writing a blog post that day because I, I did blogging from from Africa, from Ghana when we lived there. And I, I remember that, you know, the headline was Happy Chocolate Day. And I thought this is what this day is really about. So let's just call it that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm really glad that we are in a way that uh, chocolate is very much correlated with and really connected to happy occasions. Uh, that brings people together, right? Especially not only Valentine's on Easter, we have we have connected Easter to family activities. Mother's Day, we have celebrated every mother, and um, you know, coming into um, into the summer and and the holidays. So it, there is a lot really to to share about the product itself. Um, but uh, I hope that the company will continue keep rising to the moment. I mean, the challenges that they are ahead of us as, as a business community and as the world is living through, um, you know, there's there's still a lot to uh, to be told about, about the story. You read about our book. This is a chapter of our life that we'll never forget. The story did not end. We are continuing it. And hopefully one day uh, we will be looking back in time and we'll say that, uh, yeah, this was this was the right, uh, the right step forward. We took the every single right decision in our in our business in our family's history we came to at the right time we have done whatever we can to give back and we have built our business back again that it became bigger than the one was in syria it will be one day that we will look back hopefully in the next few years mm. hopefully we'll reach that step further it took my father 15 years in syria to register the business even we registered in canada within one month so when you look at really the, the contrast and the, the differences between starting a business in Syria and in Canada, we know how lucky we are to be in this country. And the processes and the information and the resources available for business community, we are very fortunate to have them. Because without them, we would not have survived the pandemic in the first place uh, as, as a business. It would be the first test, the real test for us in Canada, uh, the pandemic uh, would have been uh, not really uh, survived it. It was it was really challenging. So yeah, we have everyone in the country, everyone in the community. Um, please think uh, about the blessings that we have living in Canada. Uh, tell it to your children, because we have a lot to be grateful for. I became became a citizen on January 15th, and on my first celebration this year, um, uh, I hope to be reflecting, uh, because in January 15, 2020, I didn't know what the year is is really um, holding up for us. Um, this year, I'll be sitting down and reflecting um, as business leaders in the province. Did we do anything right? 
what could have been what can could have been done better what can we do for our province and for our neighbors because we are at the end of the day we are all neighbors not only in nova scotia in the country we are also human beings so um, the messaging is continuing as we go through and uh, i hope that uh, the company is on its uh, feet again in 2021 for a great start yeah, and, and it's also a reminder too, knowing you know this what you had to to do rebuilding, building the business in Syria, and then rebuilding here, and then you know facing the pandemic and facing the challenges of it. Uh, how important you know the sort of those entrepreneurial char- characteristics like resilience, and any and and community support, how how critical they are to, you know keeping our communities going and keeping our businesses going and uh, and and making those positive impacts. I, I couldn't agree more. This is very brilliant. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, without community, there is no way the business can survive challenges and crisis. And we have seen firsthand over the holiday season last year, how people were looking for small businesses. Like it, instead of going online and really going for 10 seconds, like you can go on, on any major platform to sell online or to buy online and you can buy your gifts from it. People did not really go for easy choices over the holidays. They looked for small businesses to support them. And uh, I, I'm really grateful for, for everyone who has done that. You know, there's been a major campaign last last year, and I know people know the challenges that small businesses are still facing in 2021 until we we reach the full recovery. But uh, 2020 has set the, the bar very low, so 2021 will have to be better. Uh, it will it would be it would be much uh, interesting really to see how the year unfolds and uh, I'm really excited for many uh, many steps big steps coming ahead for us in this year as a company. All right, well, thanks very much, uh, Tarek. I really appreciate your time very much. And I, I realize that uh, you know that next time we chat, if I'm going to talk to you for an hour about chocolate, it's like talking to a restaurant owner about oh, your okay. food. And- <laughs> And not being able to enjoy it. The next time we talk, it's it's, yeah. it's got to be over over a bar of good chocolate. Over, over a chocolate bar. <laughs> called Thinking of You, Mark. And thank you. All right. Thanks very much, Tarek. Appreciate it. Thank right. you, Mark. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And thank you very much, Tarek, for that great conversation. And if you want to listen to uh, past episodes of Huddle Home Office, including the interview I did with uh, Gordon Pitts on Unicorn in the Woods and the conversation with Donald Savoy on the Irving book, uh, please go subscribe to Huddle Home Office on your favorite podcast platform. And the Gordon Pitts conversation uh, about uh, Unicorn in the Woods was September 25th and the conversation with Donald Savoy on Irving Oil was September the 18th. So do please go catch up on past episodes of Huddle and those two in particular, if you like my conversation with Tarek. Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. We will talk to you next week.